The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. I'm Chris Rawl. I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, and today I've got a massive pleasure. Got an in, uh, talking to an incredible man, someone with a lot of military experience, someone with a lot of life experience. I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say he's probably oh like myself overcome challenges and uh, has developed that kind of mindset that that would be brilliant to, to hear about. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to say anything more other than Dave Radband. Welcome, mate. Radders to your friends in the, in the military. <laughs> Thanks for having us on, mate. Appreciate no, it. It's a, uh, Dave, it's an absolute pleasure you came on. And we should just say thank you to Charlie Noller, who's one of your fans or subscribers, whatever we call them. Um, Charlie very kindly messaged me and said, would I invite you on the show? And it's that thing, isn't it? Personal recommendations always count. Yeah. They count for a lot. They certainly do in the military. Um, yeah. And I reckon because you're working with Breakpoint, Dave, are you? Did I gather that? Yeah. Yeah, I work at Breakpoint, yeah. And that's kind of a seems to be the staff there are, are quite a close-knit special forces type. It's almost like being back in the military, but not in the military. Yeah, is that is that's quite a, quite a nice place to be, I'd imagine, after all the scrapes yeah. you've been in. It's rare to find out on Civic Street, isn't it? You know, that kind of environment. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's nice being back there, back in it. So... Why did you, you join a parachute regiment? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Was that like a childhood ambition or how did it yeah. come around? Well, my parents always said I'd, I, I was going to go in the army. They knew that was the career path I was going to take. Um, apparently, I used to call it the army because I couldn't even say army when I first started, <laughs> you know, having that career ambition. Um, so, went to school. I actually remember doing a talk on the powers. Uh, there's a book called The Powers. And it was um, a guy doing a halo jump on the front of it. And I was going to talk on the powers um, when I was 11 years old at school. And I got punched in the face at lunchtime and told I'd never make it by a bully. Um, so I went to the careers office, but my dad kind of pushed me to go to the, the RAF. So I went to the careers office to try and join the RAF fire service, but they weren't recruiting at the time. So I went downstairs and joined the reg. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny you said that because 
my last guest that I had and several before, we all say the same thing. We tried to join the RAF. They wouldn't have us. They told us we wouldn't stick the training. So we joined an elite force instead. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And um, so is that training an older shot? Excuse my ignorance. No, capture it. I went to capture Garrison. Yeah, I went up to catch it to do mine. Um, I think because I live right next to Bryce Norton Camp as well, I think that kind of pushed me in the direction of the parachute regiment because my dad knew a few of the parachute jumping instructors. Um, so when I was 11, 12, I went to Bryce Norton and done the, uh, some parts of the jump school. So that kind of gave me an insight into it. Mm. Back then, I wasn't scared of heights. So. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, mate, as you get older, you develop all this sort of fucking baggage that you think, where did, where did this shit come from? <laughs> I know. I soon I figured out I was scared of heights, mate. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's the youngest you can do a military, like the balloon jump or something? Is there an age limit on it? You don't do the balloon jump anymore. Um, I think that went out in the 80s, I, I believe. But... Um, yeah, lads at lads at seventeen, I think seventeen jumping out of a C one thirty. Nowadays they jump out of a sky, they jump out of a sky van nowadays, uh, which is a little aircraft that carries twelve paratroopers because of the shortage of uh, of aircraft and platforms. But um, yes, when I did it, we were jumping out of a C one thirty. Sky van is what like um, hobby hobby skydivers use, isn't it? That's sky- it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, you didn't do the balloon jump. I was. Um, no, I'm guessing you're a wee a wee bit younger than me. Can we say? Yeah. Because i i did my I did two balloon jumps in ninety ninety one or ninety two. I think it was. Um, but yeah, and uh, that was it. What what? How did you find your training? Yeah, it was all right. It was challenging at first. Um, I think I got to week, I think it was week 15 or 16. I, I developed a fracture in my, um, in my hip. So I got put back into, I think you call, what do you call um, your back troop? Back in the day, it was called Hunter Troop. I think it's still called, I think, I think that was it. We call, we've got one called Browning Platoon. So I went into Browning Platoon until my, um, until my fracture had healed, if you like. Um, and I've done a lot of swimming while I was in Brownham too, because it's obviously less, it's keeping my fitness up, but it's less impact work. Um, and that swimming got me turbo fit, mate. So I went back in at week 12. So I'd start, you know, back where I, back before I went, where I went in, um, got to P company and passed P company. And then that was that. Mm. Yeah. Swimming is a, Swim is a funny one. I was rubbish in the Marines. I failed yeah. the test about three times before I actually passed it. And as an adult, I because I've been getting into triathlon, I've done a lot of swimming training. But I'm so skinny. I'm still. It's still always hard work. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't the best swimmer, but obviously being in the pool every day, you. You just learn to be good at it. Learn to be good at it. Was the was the Falklands sort of? I guess you were. Were you born after the Falklands? Yeah, eighty five. I was born, mate. 
Yeah, I was 12 when the Falklands was on. So that's a massive part of um, red, your regiment history, isn't it? In the same, same as the Marines. Yeah, yeah. It's kind yeah, of... Yeah, um, it's like the biggest thing after Arnhem. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, like the biggest conflict for us since... since World War Two, really, isn't it? So, um, and like two main regiments in there. Um, I think the other one of the other regiments that went with the Welsh Guards, wasn't it? Welsh Guards and uh, yeah, 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 and the Gurkhas. Yeah, there's probably quite a few regiments down there, but the ones that stand out were the Welsh Guards because they got blown up on Sir Galahad and they suffered mass massive uh, deaths and, and casualties. Gurkhas were down there scaring the hell out of the Argentinians because they thought they were all going to get their heads chopped off. (laughs) (laughs) You know, apparently they were running from their positions when they heard the Gurkhas were coming. Well, it it happened in Afghanistan. (laughs) Yeah, well, there was one Gurkha did chop someone's head off, didn't he? And he got in the shit for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us a bit about... um, the drop Arnhem and uh, the Second World War. How is how's that in in kind of para reg history? Oh, it's huge in para reg history. Um, yeah, so Arnhem happened in September um, nineteen forty two. Um, yeah, the the intelligence was wrong. Um, there was like a Panzer division. They got told there was like you know little to, to no enemy. Germans, Germans in the area, but there was a there's a training camp and a Panzer division in the in the area, so lads jumped in and you know met resistance straight away. Um, I actually done a battlefield tour there. Well, I've done a few actually, and I parachuted into the actual DZ. They jumped in on a Grinkle Heath um, every year. The Paris jump in with um, with multinational forces. Um, it, it's a huge event. Um, we actually, when we'd done the walk of two para, we didn't even get to the bridge. And they said at this point, there was 30 lads left in the battalion. So it gives you kind of an insight into what's happened on that walk. Wow. Um, the last transmission that was sent was um, out of ammo, God save the king. That was the last transmission that the para sent on that, on that off. And then you, you know, some of the lads got away. I can't remember the exact number of deaths and casualties, but there's, you know, very little guys got across the Rhine and to safety. The rest were captured or killed. And didn't a lot die in in the gliders they were that crash land? Yeah, yeah, they did. There's a lot of there's a lot of good stories from Arnhem. Um the old guys have a lot of good stories and a lot of good books. The Germans have actually brought out a book called It Never Snows in September because of all the white parachutes. So it's a German's point of view from Arnhem, which is which is nice to um, which is nice to read, really, because they say the lads were were fierce and good fighters. Yeah, well, they say, don't they? History's written by the winners, and I certainly <coughs> would would agree with that. So it's nice to hear, you know, the other side mm. of the the other side of the coin, definitely. And John Frost, um, John Frost, um, the bridge is actually named after him now, so it's called John Frost Bridge. Which is nice. Was he a was he a para? Yeah, he was like the guy that was heading it all up there. Um, he had a hunting horn, so when he wanted the lads to attack, he used to blow his hunting horn. 
to the Huntsmaster, which yeah, I think is pretty cool. <laughs> Who was the guy? There was one guy who used to wade ashore on the Normandy beaches, wade ashore. Well, when he went ashore, he had a big claymore, you know, a big Scottish sword. Was that was that a para or was that a marine? I can't remember. I think that might have been a marine. I've never heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, gosh. And the Pegasus Bridge, that's that's legendary, isn't it? I mean, you're you um did they, they did they they took that bridge? Yeah, we didn't we didn't take the bridge in the end, no, Arnhem Bridge. Okay. Uh, uh reinforcements didn't get there. Um, to support the support powers, so um, it wasn't taken in the end. One of the Germans did cross the bridge, and this was in a, a film with Bridge Too Far. Um, a German crossed the bridge with a white flag and said, we've come to negotiate your terms of surrender. And the Paris said, we haven't got enough room to accommodate you all. <laughs> <laughs> and chinned him off and sent him back across the bridge. <laughs> yeah, I was reading about that the other day, actually. I was, uh, there was... Um... I found something online and it was just explaining the difference to the differences between the real story and the, the, the movie one. But, you know, I think they got it quite, quite spot on. Yeah. 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 And where did you deploy in the paras as a, as a, well, I mean, you went on to SFSG, right? Yeah. Yeah. Special Forces Support Group. Yeah. Do you stay a para when you're in that, or do you wear a different? Yeah. No, I'd stay a para. Um, I was actually one para before um, it start, It turned into SMSG. When I was in training, there was there was um, it's being said that it was going to turn into Special Forces Support Group. Um, so then I, I actually wanted to go to two para because that's where all my mates were. So then I got told I was going to one para because um, you don't get to pick what battalion you go to. You get told which battalion you go to. Um, and I think they picked the you know they picked the, the top recruits because of the nature of the job. Um, so I sent to SFSG and then I was sent to Northern Ireland straight away, um, where I, the lads are already deployed out there. So I come in halfway through the tour, then uh, I come back, done my jumps course. Then two, well, I think it was two months or a month before uh, the end of that tour, we got put on pre-deployment training. So we were going to. Um, I can't remember the name of the camp now, but we're going to a camp in Northern Ireland doing fast rope training, heli and surgeon drills, ready to go on the first SFSG tour in in Iraq. Wow! So um, for our, for our friends listening, SFSG is Special Forces Support Group. And when I spoke to Lou Rudd, MBE, recently, he's uh, in the parachute regiment, but he was in the SAS for ridiculously large amount of time something like 25 years uh he's also the second guy to ski across antarctica and i asked him this sfsg is this like to save money or something for the government he said no 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 they perform a, a specific role um he said it might be you know forming a perimeter basically supporting the the special uh the special air service and the special boat service is am i in in the right area yeah there? because i was recce as well within one para i ended up going into recce platoon so i supported srr as well as well as the other two do you sound like you've been in the thick of it dave really yeah it was all right 
done a few um, Gucci things with SRR. Um, went out to Cosway with them in 2008 and done some OPs and spying on people. And yeah, that was that was decent work. Can you tell us then, because um, I only ever did an OP, an observation post in training. They sent us out with a set of secateurs, I think it was. That's it, yeah. We had to crawl inside a bush, cut out ourselves a little a little house with the with the clippers, put a poncho over our heads, and the idea is you then stay there for it can be days, it can even be, be mm. weeks, I'm guessing, if if you've got yeah. enough enough supplies. Um, what we used to do is we used to get Hessian with chicken wire and put the Hessian over the chicken wire so I've like panels with a hessian weather it bury it in the ground so it's weathered and then we fold them up put them in our burgens then when we get in there we put these panels out so it creates a creates a little dome almost like it almost looks like a an igloo inside a inside a bush live in the live in those so again for our friends at home who who would who were you observing in kosovo what was the conflict going on there there was a guy that was wanted for war crimes. Um, I don't think I can go too, into too much detail of it, but this guy wanted was wanted for war crimes. So we um, we went out there uh, undercover as PWRR. We had to wear the PWRR berry. What is um, that? Peace, peacekeeping or something? Yeah, they were out there peacekeeping. Yeah, um, so we had to go because they were the ones that were going out there. Um, we flew in undercover because they didn't want to. They didn't want to, you know people to know that we were there really um and we had uh lots of civvy cars that we drive around in getting dropped off in locations going into ops um going and living with people i lived with family um for a little while it's really nice actually the, the lady used to make me fresh bread every morning um to have my super noodles <laughs> so it's re- it's actually really nice did we were you armed i mean i'm guessing you were yeah we were armed yeah and i can i can pick up the target talk people onto the target if they want to drop them um obviously people can't follow the target all the time you've got to drop them and let somebody else take over at some stage but give me a a better better eyes on so 2008 that's that's after iraq and afghanistan isn't it that's after the first um yeah or the initial in, in, initial Initial war. Sorry, mate. So I take time. It's fine. Yes. Yeah, so you were in Afghanistan as well. Yeah, I've done. Um, yeah, I've done a few Afghan Afghan tours. Yeah. How many is a few? Can I ask? Um, I've done, I done four Afghans. Not all. Um, not all. Um, six months. Um. Yeah, not all six months. Not all my tours were six months. Um, like the one in Kosovo was I think six, seven weeks, maybe eight weeks. Um, yeah, we have a specific, specific job, role to do. And sometimes just get out there, do the job and come back mm-hmm. rather than stay. It's a long time to be away, isn't it? Six months, really. You, you, it doesn't sound a lot, but... When you're on that sort of deployment, you get what three months in, then you do start thinking about home. Well, that was that was sort of our experience. Is that different if you, if you're doing a sort of specialist role? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, is yeah, it can be different. The first, um, my first rap tour, I'd done seven months out there. Um, it, always, it can always change. Obviously, things things change when you're on tour. So, mm. you, Dave, can you give us some examples of firefights and stuff, or or incidents you've been involved in? God, there's hundreds of those. <laughs> hundreds. Um, yeah. yeah. So every probably every day in the 2009 tour, um, I was fighting in contact with the Taliban. I was attached to the Welsh Guards on that tour for six months as a Tiger Team commander. A Tiger Team is um, so our job on that as SFSG was to um, we had Afghan special forces that we would train and take out on on operations. Um, it was many various different operations. It was probably the best tour or the best operation in Afghanistan. And the SAS tried to take it off us because it was that good. Um, but DSF said, you're not having it, it's their role because it was proper war fighting, you know, platoon, company, section attacks um, wow. in villages. And it was, it was proper war fighting. So I sent out on the, um, on Tiger team attached to the Welsh Guards as a, as a recce force. So what, what, we, what we could provide to other, um, other units and it went across other nations as well like the Americans I was attached to the Americans for a little while um, Estonians lads are going out with all you know all different types of, of units um, but we'd be, we'd be like a recce force so when we go we'd go into the town first that no one had been before an area where no one had been before because Afghans seeing Afghans was a lot better than us just marching through in an extended line and scaring the locals and obviously they know when something's wrong in the t- town or can sense um, if something's up. So I'd go in my Afghans and relay all the information back to, um, to these units, which sometimes turn into a scrap. <laughs> you, you go in there and tell them I'm start scrapping you straight away. And being with uh, eight Afghans can be quite hairy sometimes. Yeah, they can be a bit loose, I'm guessing. No, these ones are really good. These ones are really good. Uh, on that tour, I actually had a price on my head. The Taliban put a price on my head. Um, and because I wore American uniform, which was cry cam at the time, um, because we get we, we got given cry precision kit and had a G3 and a Gentex helmet, they actually nicknamed me Obama. So on the on the Taliban radio, they called me Obama. Um, so I, when I went back to camp, I started wearing some Union Jacks on my on my kit. <laughs> Just let him know I'm not American. <laughs> <laughs> so, did, I remember, I mean, the, the come under fire twice. The first time, it it all happened so fast. Um, yeah. How did? I, I don't want to say panic. I don't think we panicked. But I mean, at the end of the day, if, if rounds are coming in and you're out in the open, you've got to take cover pretty quickly, at least until you can sort of ascertain where the firing point is. Um, but do you? That must become quite routine the way you react to. In yeah, I've been ambushed a few times by the Taliban, and I mean like well orchestrated ambushes. I can remember one time I um I lost communications in a wooded area, so I went, you. As we all know, we go back to our last place of comms because that's the last place you know you had comms. So um, 
I broke this tree line with my with my Afghans. And as the last man got out the the tree line, I turned back to just have a look, make sure the lads are out, everyone was fine. And just got smashed with a massive weight of fire. RPGs coming in a lot, mate. Um, so I ran and just dived in a ditch. And I can remember being in this ditch, just keeping my head up and trying to control by the because the Afghans are a bit, like you say, a bit loose and they'd be firing from the hips, stood up and all, you know, just getting RPGs off like 10 men. And um, and I can remember all the, tri- the tree branches falling down where rounds are just hitting the, hitting the trees that I'm in. And one of my Afghans ran over to me and was like, Mr. Dave, like my weapon. And I looked at him and he's, he's had a round go straight through his PKM. So he must have been holding it and it's just gone straight through. And I said, mate, that's US getting a ditch with me. And he ran off and got the RPGs off his mate's back and started firing them. I was like, you crack on, mate. <laughs> also, you've got to watch out for the back blast on the RPG. I wouldn't want someone firing that next to me unless they knew what, oh, what they were doing. Yeah, I had a few of them fire AK-47s right next to my head here as well. And it just blows your ears out. So if you look on a lot of my photos from the 2009 tour, some of them I won't have the ear deaths under my helmet. But when I went back to camp, I had to have ear deaths in the end because even that G3 I was carrying short barreled 7.62 blur my ears out mate wow yeah I was going to say that that's kind of you don't factor that in really when I mean when we went out and patrolling Northern Ireland we didn't have ear defenders we didn't even have them in yeah. our pockets or anything you know yeah. I guess it's just one of them if you're going to if in the in the remotest chance you get contacted and like I say we did twice in well by 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 um shots we got contacted twice we had we had a lot of ieds um going off in belfast at the time i mean but um yeah i mean it just wasn't a thing to carry ear defenders or anything but i guess what you're doing it it's 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 to save you hearing at all costs yeah there's a there's another time where i was um i was going into um Louis Man de Calais, it was, and we got intelligence as 20 IEDs in the bazaar. So they sent my, um, me and my Afghans into this, into this area. Um, and when you get told there's 20 IEDs in the area, you know someone's going to get, going to get hit by an ID because, you know, it's pretty good intelligence they get. Um, so we got into a compound where we got contacted, um, got into a compound, squared all the lads away, broke out the compound. And as I walked through a door I just got I just got smashed and um it was really confusing time because I didn't know what was going on and when I kind of collected myself and just took that condor moment and you know took a breath to realize you know and just see what was going on I was on my back and realized that somebody stood on an ID and I'm still laying on my back at this time and I thought it was me because I got hit by the wave I thought I was the one that stood on it so I started you know, checking myself and I could move move my feet because I didn't want to look down initially and um I was moving my feet in this, all this dust and sand and yeah, started patting myself down, no blood. And, um, I stood up, was walking around and, you know, I could hear one of my Afghans talking and it, it was very muffled and he was half in the hole, half out of it and cut in half with only one arm. God. Um, and he, and he died. But, um, but what happened was, what I didn't realise was my helmet was crushed on one side. I've still got the helmet now, and there's a massive dent in the front. His weapon had hit my helmet, and um, obviously, if I didn't have that helmet on, yeah, or if it was a, if it was a little bit lower on my neck, I'd be dead, mate. 
Yeah, God. It's what's it? What is the trauma like, Dave? I mean, you see a bloke ripped to pieces. It's, I guess, it, it was fine. It, it was fine then. Um, I d- didn't bother me at all. Um, it, it, it says in my citation because I got put forward for a match cross on that tour, um, and it says that um, my resolve never wavered, and every day I just took the took the took the fight to the enemy, even after deaths of my team and things and. Um, and I did. I just kept on going back and hitting them harder. Um, it was only when I come back and really, you know, started to process things that that's when it starts. So it's when you got time on your hands. Time is what is what gets you because mm. you can't fight time. It's mm. t- time's a thing that you can't fight. And. Um, did it get things, you out after you left the forces, or was it was it while you were still in? Well, I went back on the uh, 2011 tour. So I went back to Afghan in 2011, um, and I was in an ID strike there. One of the wagons I was in got blown up, and um, I can remember coming back to camp and having a bit of a moment in the camp where you know having a bit of a shake, and um, I think I I kind of knew then that things had changed in, within my within myself then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I come back after that tour, um, and I was getting ready to go back to Afghan 2014 and left, left the military. Yeah, but yeah, I think 2000. I think it all started in 2009, and then kind of progressed on. When um, did you whoever. finally leave, Dave? 30th of May 2014, I left. Oh, okay, so you have five years of, of experience. Yeah, but within that, so but within that. Um, Within my time in the army, I've done ten tours. That's a lot. Yeah. So you- yeah, but some of them were northern. Like I say, some of them are northern. We're going back out to Northern Ireland, um, right up until two thousand eight. So obviously, Northern Ireland finished in two thousand five to um, to everyone else. But we were going back out there for like three, four weeks, five weeks, um, helping SRR putting covert cameras and things and. Can I ask then, um, in Northern Ireland then, I mean, obviously we, this, the, we're, everyone's labouring under the, I don't know if illusion is the right word, but the, the uh, Good Friday Agreement. And I just, um, I've said this quite a lot, I saw such bitterness and hatred in Northern Ireland that no piece of paper was going to stop that anytime soon. I mean, don't get no. me wrong. It's brilliant for this. For I mean, just take the city of Belfast. The fact that they can move, that they seem to have moved on. Put, put people could go out to the pubs without fear of getting blown up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I would have said these paramilitaries. They are no way ready to give up the struggle. Absolutely, yeah, no way. Can you expand on that, Dave, from your experience? Um. But yeah, I think I, I think I can agree with you if I was in your shoes. Mm. Did you have a favourite weapon during your time in the forces? Yeah, HKG three or HK four one seven. I saw one in one of your Instagram pictures. It looked like it had a stop, like a, a single arm stop. <laughs> don't know. Don't the yeah, G three, HKG three. Wow. That's yeah. Hector, Hector so, and Cock. 
Yeah, so it's a, they're both seven six two. Wow, that packs quite a punch then. Yeah, I used to call it the showstopper. <laughs> Did you ever fire the SLR in your career? No, no. That was a lovely weapon to fire. Yeah. You know, we, we were the, my, my sort of age, we were the first cohort to have the SA-80. Back, yeah. when it, back when it had so many problems, right? And uh, but because I was a ship's marine, we uh, we got a nine millimeter and a an SLR. Um, and to fire the SLR on the range when you've you've only experienced five point five six before, it's two. It's almost like two completely different experiences. Yeah. Really feel the the you know. Not yeah, that's that's what the G three is like. Is it accurate? Yeah, really good weapon system, yeah. Yeah, because the SLR, it just chucks that slug 300 metres and it's you don't have to allow for wind as much as... Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. 2009, I, um, I done a compound assault to save a Welsh guard's life and uh, a heli coming in. I led an assault with my Afghans and um, as I went through the door, that compound, I see one of the Taliban fighters who stood right in front of me and um, I hit him in the chest and it dropped him straight out. It was seven six two, like you say, packs a punch in it. It's a good weapon system to. That's what you want to have seven six two. I, I don't really like five five six. I don't think it packs enough. Packs enough punch. You need something just going to drop them first round. Yeah, they used to say it was that it became NATO standard. Um, the two reasons they gave: one, it's lighter. The the ammunition's lighter to carry, and you can pack more of it in a small space. The other one was. Yeah. The other chestnut was that it it just tags someone, so it injures them, doesn't kill them, and then you need four blokes to look after them. But yeah, yeah. at the end of the day, you still got to have a weapon that does the job, haven't you? That's it. Yeah. Did you rescue yeah. that guy? Yeah, we saved him. Yeah, that's what we put the four for the military cross for. Did you get the military cross? No, I got unmentioned dispatches. Wow. Oh. God, yeah. <laughs> From just the stories you've said so far, it's <laughs> you definitely deserve one. Bloody hell. Yeah. And I work for more of my Afghans, to be honest. The Afghans, like, you know, they're not training CQB like me. But um, we assaulted that compound and killed seven Taliban that day and saved that guy's life. So um, it was a good day and they, the Afghans done well. Yeah. It's just yes. a, shame, a shame they can't get something as well, you know, similar. And is it fair to say, um, I mean, an operation like that is diff. It's not, I mean, it could go really wrong, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I actually thought I was going to die that day. Um, I thought the door would be booby trapped, or, you know, the, the Taliban aren't going to make it easy to get to the compound. They're going to fortify it in some way. But um, instead of that, just bleeding out and dying to you, lost his left leg. I had to do something. I wasn't just going to sit there and do nothing. Being a paratrooper, a special forces support group operator, I felt like the Welsh guards are looking at me to do something. So I, um, so I, I went and done it. I wasn't just going to sit there. Oh, good effort. Good effort. Bit like I'd this rather, time, a mate I'd of rather mine. Die than, uh, go on, mate. No, 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 no. It's your problem. Yeah, I'd rather, I'd, I'd, I'd rather die than just sit there and do nothing and live without guilt and shame. Yeah, it's like the Gurkha saying it. It's better to die fighting than you know. 
die a mm. die a lie and then live your life a coward and that's that's always yeah. been my sort of um philosophy yeah. um i had a question then um uh yeah it's gone but um can we just peel back a bit to your to your jumps course did you have to do the the hey ho and the halo and this sort of stuff no no especially you don't do that um, some of the lads do stack line squares. Um, so you go, you go down and do a stack line squares course, which is the, um, uh, it's like a, it's, it's, they're the square parachutes you can steer. Um, so lads can jump in with, uh, with Hereford and SB if they, if they need, need to. Um, so it's like another course after your round, your LLP, low level parachute um, course. Did you enjoy the parachuting? Were you? Were no, you I hated it. Because of the height thing, or yeah, yeah. Every 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 jump's a night jump, isn't it? Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Because you got your eyes closed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh. And um, so, moving forward, how how did the military? react or respond to your needs when you realize that you were starting to suffer the effects of of 10 operational tours well i think a lot of it was um <clears throat> i think a lot of it was i wasn't honest with myself to be honest um one thing i realized is you can't you can't be helped in, until you help yourself and if you don't want to help yourself then no one can help you and no help no no amount of help's gonna gonna put you in the right mindset so by me not helping myself kind of made the army not effectively help me um however i did go to my mo and say that because my my missus started to realize that i was um i was struggling and and things hang on two secs well, he can wait um yeah so i um where was i you're saying that you were start, starting to Sorry, struggle. Sorry, people, people are trying to get hold of me. Um, you were starting to struggle. Um, did you say... Yeah, I was starting to struggle. So I went to, my, missus, my missus see that I was starting to struggle, so I went to see my medical officer. Um, and they just put me down to have an anger issues. Um, and then she'd come back, she'd come with me to see MO again. And he, um, and he, he put it down to anger issues again. Um, but it, it was it was more than that. It was it wasn't anger issues. Um, it just wasn't really post traumatic stress. wasn't really well recognised thing back then. Mm. Um, even in, there's been a massive change in like the last six years since I left in mental health within the military. But back then wasn't really wasn't really a thing. Even then. Well, back then they just tried. Uh, very often, the military will just try and get rid of you, won't they? They'll, they'll, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And obviously, that's one of the reasons why I wasn't honest with my, wasn't honest with um, with myself because I didn't want to get um, discharged through through mental health reasons. Obviously, I wanted to stay in, and which is one of the confusing things. Cause I wanted to go back to Afghan. I wanted to be war fighting, but then you know, it's one of those things that was making me suffer. So. There's a lot of mixed emotion going on. How can you be? How can you not want? You know, how can a place like traumatically injure you, um, but then you want to go back and do it? Mm. 
Well, Sebastian, is it Sebastian Younger talks a lot about this. Have you seen his, did he do a, a documentary? I think it was called Restrepo. He was attached. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. He was attached, wasn't he, to a group of US, either soldiers or Marines, at an outpost in Afghanistan for six months. And he made a documentary and wrote a book. When he did his TEDx talk, his, he, he posed the question, you know, why is it that despite all the horrors, young men, you know, or soldiers still feel more comfortable in war? Yeah. And uh, I, I guess that's, you know, there's, it's, there's not one single reason, is there? I've actually written a post, um, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called Peace and War. There's a post on my um, Instagram, it's called Peace and War, and it's the reason there's, um, there's like a, yeah, it's a little post about why, why I miss war. Yeah, I'll link to that below the YouTube video, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine, mate, yeah. And what were your con conclu conclusions? Um, it's black and white, isn't it? It's, it's, it's fighting, no fighting, brothers side by side um there's the emotion of like missing the door kicking the feeling that you know missing the feeling that you could die at any moment because it's actually quite a good feeling um yeah there's, there's a lot of emotion in war a lot of emotion and adrenaline is a big factor i'm guessing isn't it it's a natural yeah. natural yeah well sort of a natural high and there's the other bit that i put in there about the work there's no worries yeah, there's no worries about changing the washing machine because it's broken, or you know, the, the, the niff naff your missus deals with back in back in the UK, and you know, you're just out there war fighting. That's it. It's fighting, no fighting. Um, it's it's very, it's just easier pace of life, really. When I went to uni, I studied youth work, right, and I had to go and work in this youth organization in the in the city i live in and on the first day they the, one of the workers gave us a briefing he took us around the building showed us the fire exits which obviously was all good and then he pointed to the top balcony and it was the third floor of the building and he said if there's a fire this is the spot where we leave the disabled people <laughs> 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 and I, honestly I thought he was just paying lip service because, you know, that's what he's got to say, right? So I said, I said, so like, you, are, you are joking, aren't you? He's like, no, you, you can't help them out of the building because you might hurt them. <laughs> right, okay. So if there's a fire, you're going to have a Royal Marines commando who's just going to leave a disabled person on the third yeah. floor. Don't ever... But it, it was li it's little things like that that, you know, guys like yourself, people who've been in the military, have to get over in Civvy Street, isn't it? It's it's that. Yeah. It, it, initially, it's like a it can really kick you in the in the nuts, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Like the silliness of it uh, of it all. Um. So. Did you sort of have a breakdown, Dave? Is that yeah, massively, yeah. I tried to kill myself twice, mate. I um I hung myself once and parents found me hanging, cut me down and revived me, managed to bring me back to life. Um and then the second time I stabbed myself. Um 
yeah, because I just wanted to, you know, I wasn't sleeping a lot because of like nightmares and things, and um, there's a lot going on in my, a lot going on in my head, and I just couldn't get, just couldn't get it out, mate. So um, I just, people say suicide's a selfish thing, but it's not because it's not you. You're not in control of your mind. Demons are in control of your mind, so it's not selfish because the demons. That's the way I look at it. Um, the demons are taking over me, mate. I wasn't myself. I wasn't this person. And did you, were you like me? Did you go down the drug route? Yeah, I was drinking a lot. Yeah, all that. You're know, stupid. Um, I was just on a self destructive path, really. Went to prison um, for two weeks. I was on remand in prison. Um, yeah, so just being an idiot and getting myself in trouble, getting arrested a lot. Did you have a moment of sort of enlightenment where, where you hit rock bottom and then you thought, hang on a sec? When I was in prison, really, because I was in prison over Christmas, so I didn't get to see my kids or my wife um, on Christmas Day. Didn't you know? I got to talk to him because the lad got me, um, give me his phone card to phone him, um, but didn't get to see him or spend Christmas with him that that year. Um, so that was kind of like you know a moment. So then rock to recovery because the NHS didn't help me in any way. If anything, they made me worse. They give me a title, um, and they trip the title, not the person. Um, and it was just like they're ticking boxes. Mm. I was just going there, ticking, having boxes ticked, and it was to me, it was a waste of time. So I stopped going. Um, and then Rock to Recovery reached out to me, Jamie Sanson and Joe, um, Jason Fox's mm. charity. I'm doing a I'm doing a mountain bike across America next. Well, it's supposed to be next year. Going to do the hardest. Uh, mountain bike route in the world, I think, from north to south across the states. And Jason agreed to be our pa- patron. Yeah, that's good. Good, no, good charity. Um, after the first session, what was it called? EMDR. They done with me. Um, yeah, done the EMDR, which is uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's it's eye movement. I think it's eye movement something. But yeah, it was um. I come out of there and felt, you know, like I waited, gone already. Um, and I think just talking to people that were in, the, were in the military and know what I'm talking about, rather than going to the NHS and having to, you know, when you're talking about a scenario and you say like a G3 or a FOB or um, CAF and things, you've got to go into, or an a, you know, a strafing run, you've got to go into detail and explain to these things to, to them because they're civvies, which I don't want to sit in there for like an hour explaining minor detail I just want to be able to talk about a story and it's someone's engaging with me it knows what I'm talking about and to go there and have have that made a massive difference yeah definitely can you can you explain what that 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 EMDR it's it's something like eye movement uh, desensitization something I've I've, I've heard of a lot of people. yeah what does so it, it take involve? You back to- they take you back to the moment of trauma um, and you, you do these exercises which take you back to a moment of trauma and then you watch their hand and it, it, it moves the direction of the trauma in the way you see it, um, which really helps, but it didn't get rid of them. Um, it didn't get rid of my, um, it didn't get rid of my demons. It helped, but it didn't get rid of them. It was only when I went to Costa Rica with um, Ollie Alton and done ayahuasca that things changed massively and it's just changed my 
it's changed my life. It's changed my outlook on life, and it's changed who I am. Um, and it's since I come back from Costa Rica, the amount of people that have said to me, "You look different. You act different. You you look more approachable. You're happier." The, the, the feedback I've got since I've come back from Costa Rica is unbelievable. And it was just down to ayahuasca. So ayahuasca, for people listening, is is a plant medicine. Been used probably for thousands of years by the indigenous uh, communities down there in South America. And I, I've never done it. But then again, I'm... Well, maybe I... <laughs> It's hard to know if you're fixed, isn't it? It's like, at what point in your life do you say, yeah, I'm, I'm okay? Because... A lot of stuff I think you just carry and you learn to manage it, right? So I've, ne- I, I've never, yeah, I, I wouldn't say no to the experience. Could you just talk us a bit? Well, where we, yeah, where we, this is the first time I've spoken about this actually about my ayahuasca trip. Um, um, so you do four ceremonies there, um, and during that time, um, you're obviously facing your demons, you go there to face your demons, so I knew it's gonna be tough, um. The first ceremony, I fell asleep and woke up, and everyone had gone. I didn't feel anything. So the second time, I, I um, took a larger dose of ayahuasca, and um, I can remember walking around. I don't want to say too much because um, I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a talk about it after Ollie's book comes out because there's a, there's a lot about mine and Ollie's ayahuasca experience in his book. It comes out this month on the 30th this month. Mm. So I don't want to give too much away at the minute. Um, but yeah, so I went. In, I was walking around the halls of Valhalla. Um, I can only describe it as well, the, the halls of Valhalla because it was just an, it was a castle. And I walked around the corner, and there was my mate Kev Mulligan that got killed in Afghanistan, stood right in front of me. And it was as real as we are now. And um, and he said to me, "Come on, like I got something to show you." So we went through this door, and all the lads, all my mates, have been killed in Afghan. We're drinking. They were all on that, all on the lash. So I got to see all my mates that have been killed in Afghan um, again. Um, and then I looked, at, I looked over into a corner and there was, um, there's a guy that I shot one day. I got it, I got it wrong. I, I, made a, I made a misjudgment and killed a guy. I thought he was digging an ID into the ground. Um, it was out for a few hours and my rules of engagement said I could take the shot. So I took a shot and killed him. But it, he wasn't putting an ID in the ground. He was just squatting in the road trying to get a stream to go across the road for his cow um, and he he was there and he came over to me and like give me a call shook my hand and went back off um, to the rest of the Taliban fighters that were in there um, and it was just a weird weird experience so like, I was there having a drink with all the lads and um, one thing I've said is out of, the, out of all the things that I probably miss or regret was the fact that I never got to say to um say to the lads that have been killed in Afghan that you know you love them because we don't show emotion we don't do that women women do it a lot they say oh I love you to their friends but men don't do it mm. and I'm when I you know it made me realize why do you do that why 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 are men less like less emotional why do we not say oh, I love you mate um and I never got to do that so it made me made me think a lot and I got to do it there I got to give my mates a cuddle and tell them I love them and before I left, Kev said, I need to show you something. So we went to a room um, and he opened the door and my mum was on the end of the bed crying and he said, your actions do that. He said, look, every action that, that you make um, when you go off the rails, try to kill yourself, that's what happens. So it gave me an insight. It showed me what my actions do. Um, so I got closure. I got 
you know, it showed me what my actions do and how it affects all the other people around me. Um, so that was the second night. The third night, um, or the third Oscar ceremony, should I say, I'd done a, a larger dose again. Um, and I was, it was crazy. I was following the shadow in this. I can only describe the shadow as a smoky, it was like a smoky circle, um, a smoky shadow with, with a face. And it kept looking at me and laughing. And I said, I kept saying to it, show me what I need to see to live a positive life. And um, it just kept laughing at me and I was following it. And then I walked through the gates of hell. Everything was on fire. I was just in shorts, topless. And I can describe it as I was in hell. Um, I come out of the um, trip for a minute and looked at my hands and they were red covered in blood. When I went back into the trip, my wife and kids were dead at my feet. I'd become the killer again and killed my wife and kids. Um, and I was trying to revive them. I was trying to sort it out and I was having a bad trip and I was trying to get out of it. And um, the more I tried to get out of it, the more it sucked me in deeper. Um, and it started making me believe that this is my life. This is real. And I was, I was in a bad way. And if I wasn't in a controlled environment, I'd have killed myself that night. I can see why people kill themselves on hallucinogenics. Um, but anyway, when I come out of it, I was really distraught. Ollie had to calm me down. Um, I said, I'm not doing it again. That's it. Um, I'm done. And um, he said, he's never seen me like that. It, you know, never seen that fear in, in my eyes. But I can, when I processed it the next day, I can only describe it as it, uh, it showed it, the, the plant medicine showed me that if I carry on living the life I'm living, I'm going to, I'm not going to kill anybody, but I'm going to lose my wife and kids. Um, but also at the end of it, that trip, I killed myself in the, in the trip. Um, and it just showed me that in order for me to grow, I needed to, I needed to change who I am. And I, and I've got to change my, my life. Um, so it's like the death of my mind based identity, my mind based identity being the paratrooper still. And it's a rebirth of my true self, which is who I am now. How do you see, Dave, this is probably one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had. So thank you for that, mate. Um, That's all right. How do you reconcile that? Because a silly little thing, right? When I get called a Walt, which happens, you know, quite quite frequently... And then people stand up for me and I'll say, you don't need to do that. I, I don't care. I generally, yeah. my, my identity isn't in the military that I did, you know, 25 years ago now. My identity is in, in just being, I'm not even Chris Rule. For me, I'm just a part of this universe and I'm, I'm trying to do my best for the, for the, for the other people that I, I meet in it going back to your love thing i love everybody because i don't think there's another way and i think unless you yeah. get unless you get to that point in life we get rid of the prejudice the judgment or, or i don't think you you can move forward right so i i'll tell everyone i love them and, yeah. and that that's i think that's the way to be but you've obviously had more <laughs> of an identity as a soldier than I did simply because you played the role so much longer and harder. Is yeah. that, is that easy? Do, do you step away from that now? Do you sort of remember? Yeah. With pride? I, still, 
I still, I still post them. Probably the, the, the one thing I do about the military is just tell stories, and um, I tell stories about my military career and post pictures on my Instagram. Um, but that's more for my followers, really. If I didn't have the following I got, I wouldn't even be posting pictures of the military and telling stories. Um, but people find an interest in that. Um, but I don't really talk about the military that much anymore. Um, I've, I've kind of left that life behind now. And if anything, um, the military now is a stepping stone for me. I see it as a stepping stone. Every life, every every experience I've had in life has been a has been a lesson. Um, and I've been given a lot of life experiences, and that, you know a lot of those were in the military. So the parachute regiment and military as a whole was um, was a stepping stone for me to to go on to bigger and better things, which is which is to help people. So the military isn't what I thought the military was and the parachute agent was me. That's who I am. I am Dave Redband, the paratrooper. It's not though. I'm um, I'm destined for bigger and better things than that. It was just a stepping stone. And um and I was just show me that that I am um, it was it was just a stepping stone. It was just a series of life experiences and that's not who I am. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm just all credit to you, mate. You know, that's a that's a, a real kind of milestone marker in life is to be able to say, actually, you know, that's not my identity. It doesn't. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm me. But all that trauma that I experienced that was affecting me um, and bringing um, bringing the demon out, bring the demon out of me, if you like, um, I t- I take them as as life lessons now. Was, they were they were lessons to show me who I really was they weren't there to try and kill me i mean i tried to kill myself twice and failed so i i, I did try a third time so i thought i'd just fail at that so uh <laughs> nah, um i just see them more as life lessons i don't regret anything i've done up until this point now i don't regret trying to kill myself because it's shown me the right path things like that have put me on the right path and i do, i believe if i weren't if i wasn't given those life experiences i wouldn't be able to help people in the way i'm helping people uh, um people people watching me will get sick of hear, me hearing it but i always say to people the <coughs> best experience in my life probably one of the thing um, something i'm far more proud of than being in the military is being uh, addicted to drugs um and coming through addiction mm. it's like you say to me it's just an experience there's no nothing negative about it at all it was it's tough and yeah. sadly, some people will die coming, you know, try, coming through that experience. But that didn't happen to me. <coughs> yeah. Um, and it not it isn't it wrong the way society tries to make you feel bad if you've got any kind of mental health issue, any if you yeah. do anything different to what you know the government want the norm to be, and then you yeah. have to spend the rest of your life explaining to people, no, actually, it's made me who I am yeah yeah it is sad yeah and when i come back into this um this life from the military because i didn't have a lot of friends where i live i was trying to fit in so um i that's what that's what put me on the drug and alcohol path by trying to fit in and trying to be you know trying to be someone i wasn't yeah i i i that rings a bell with me too. Definitely. Mm. When you, when you put the drugs and alcohol behind you, you definitely become a more genuine, you know, you do become more yeah. genuine, I think. Um, yeah. Cause it's an illusion, isn't it? Substances. Yeah. An illusion. Is yeah. there, 
Is there anything on that journey other than the ayahuasca, obviously, that you found really helpful, Dave? You know, um, is there any kind of psychological te techniques you use? No, it's the, it, it was just ayahuasca that's put me on the right path, mate. That's wicked. Well, I can't say it was just that because uh, Rock to Recovery helped me. Um, they, yeah, I felt better after going to Rock to Recovery, but the one thing that stood out to me as I am in a much better place now and don't get me wrong I still have like nightmares or I still sit and stare into dead space and think about think about things but I think of them in a different way now I don't think of them in a negative way I look at it as a positive and I bring all the positive out of um, a situation rather than dwelling on the negatives and letting it destroy me yeah turn every <laughs> negative into a positive and sadly yeah. so, sadly society conditions us to do the opposite doesn't it yeah, me and so since that, me and Ollie went out to um, Costa Rica with um, a charity called Heroic Hearts, which is um, run by Americans. So we went out there with um, some American, other American soldiers, and me and Ollie are now become ambassadors for that charity. So we're going to look at getting more veterans, um, British veterans, out to do ayahuasca and try and help the veterans in the way it's helped me. Mm. So watch this space because we're um we're going to be helping veterans with ayahuasca soon yeah i've got i've got a few ideas well i've got an idea there to put to you i won't i won't put it to you during the podcast but if we just chat afterwards when i that that yeah. means when i hit the record button off for, for people at home but um let's talk about your life now because i'm kind of quite impressed with your instagram i'm quite new to that so i didn't really yeah. realize until i started doing the podcasting what a massive influence it it can can attract and and, and have yeah on today's i'm gonna say young people because i'm guessing most people seem young younger than me these days but um yeah yeah you you you've got quite a following on there yeah um yeah, it's just because I talk about my experience. I talk about my um, I talk about my mental health quite openly um, to try and help people. A lot of people message me and say I've had, I've had messages of people saying I've saved their life through my um, through my posts and um, yeah, so it's really good. It's really good to have that. And obviously, being at Breakpoint, we um, we get a lot of people that come on our courses to try and better themselves or they suffered with mental health. So I'm able to engage with them there as well. Well, you probably say you'll save lives, mate, by having this conversation with me today. Yeah. This shouldn't, yeah, but... shouldn't be underestimated. The biggest thing servicemen are afraid of is what their mates will think of them. That's what I'm that's what I reckon. Yeah, and to be honest with you, a lot of people in um a lot of people in the mild unit don't talk to me anymore because because of what I've um because of what I've spoken about, but um it, it doesn't bother me in any way. Um, I am who I am now and they don't like it they don't like it I'm doing what I'm doing to help other people I'm doing what I'm doing to save lives and and end this stigma of mental health so if I can talk about it anybody can talk about it well they're still living they're still letting their ego control their actions and yeah if you want to if you want to truly be free and content in life you can't let your ego control you because it makes you do all the shit things <laughs> yeah yeah um, Oh, fantastic! And you did bodybuilding at one stage, and, and and that again, you've got a different 
you got a different view yeah, on that? Yeah, I was bodybuilding. I was taking steroids and things. Um, a lot of people say to me it was a steroids that was affecting my mind. It wasn't. Um, and I can tell you that it wasn't. Um, bodybuilding just put a lot more insecurities into me. Um, and it just added more more um, more drama to my life. Um, like the insecurities it brings. You're constantly chasing to be better than the next bloke in the gym. You're never happy with how you look. You've always got to get a pump before you go out on a night out. And the insecurity it brings is just... Is is stupid, and I put a post up about um, unhealthy the, the unhealthy aspects of bodybuilding, and the amount of bodybuilders that have been messaging me, and they're all talking about ourselves. They're, talk, they're all saying, "I've been a world champion. I've done this. I trained in one of these gyms." I'm like, "This is my point. You're talking about yourself. You've just messaged me a massive message, and it's all about you, 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 you. That's my that's my point." Mm. Um. Yeah, yeah, and it, 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 and, they, and they've, they've proven I'm right. Yeah, ex exactly. And it's I, I mean, I was the same. I, I went through the steroid phase and I, 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 was just, I was just so naive, Dave, you know, naive, yeah. insecure. The bigger you get, the smaller you look in the mirror. Um, Go back again to a mind-based identity of trying to be somebody I wasn't. And um, the way I describe that is, by taking steroids and putting muscle on, it was almost armour. To It was almost armour as a protection of who I really was because people would see me in a different light. People would look at me and go, you're rich, you're big, and forget about the rest. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like wearing body armour again. As soon as I took that body armour off and lost that muscle and started being who I am now, that's when things started to oh, change as well. Because it was, hiding, it was hiding who I was. Mm -hmm. We're starting to lose a connection, Dave. So I'll, I'll bring our wonderful chat to a close. Um, yep. What? Just to summarise, what are you doing with yourself now? Is, is there anything you can tell us about your life now? Yeah. So um, I'm the chief instructor at um, Breakpoint um, at the Breakpoint Academy, where we put veterans through a course. Um, it's, a, it's a four day course. If they pass that course with us, then they go on to work at Orion Rail. Um, starting on 30k a year which is a which is a great job to walk into um so if any veterans out there want to come on the academy and get a job with a, on the railways then come to the breakpoint academy um we also do corporate events helping corporate companies until bit like team build and then um psychometric um prism tests um trying to incorporate special forces mission planning into into companies um which is which is really good actually. We're getting a lot of good feedback from um, from these corporate companies by giving them our way of mission planning. What's it like working with um, two TV celebrities and Foxy and Ollie? Is that? Oh, they're great guys. Yeah, but Ollie's a massive. Oh, <coughs> Ollie, Ollie is one of the guys. Well, he is probably the guy that's helped me the most. He um, by him taking me to Costa Rica, um, and. You know, giving me that, letting me have that experience of ayahuasca has changed my life. Um, so I can I can thank him enough for that. But he um, he doesn't want any thank you. He just the change in me is his thanks, as he says. But um, if you want to read more about our story in uh, Costa Rica, get his book on, which is out on the thirtieth of uh, of April. I'll put a link for that below the video. Do you have a book? Yeah. Do you have a book coming yeah, out? Yeah. Yeah, but we haven't got a date for it yet. It's been put back because of all this. Um, 
but when it's out, look at my Instagram and um, and you'll see. Okay, I'm going to put a link for your Instagram below the video as well. So, Brilliant. mate, just stay on the line um, when I when I finish this. Um, I'll just say a, an official goodbye. So, Dave, lots of love to you and your family, mate. Um, well, Thank you, mate. You're, you know, when people call the military heroes, I say no, they're not heroes. They're just doing a job. This guy yep. is a, you know, I'm talking about you now, Dave. This is a hero. Someone that is willing to open up, tell the truth, has compassion, humanity, looks after his brothers and sisters in the in you know in 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 the genuine way not just just the kind of a post on facebook so mate thank you ever so much um to everybody at home big love to you all thank you for watching the bought the t-shirt podcast if you could please like and subscribe it just helps me to you know to have these amazing chats and if you've got any questions just put them below the video Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.